The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Start by saying that there's nothing I'd rather be doing on this, the worst day of the year, uh, the 4th of July, than talking about black politics at a revolutionary socialist conference. <laughs> I hope that um, I hope that the slave-owning founding fathers are rolling in their graves. Um, it's going to be an angry talk, people. Um, so, and uh, there's reason to be angry. I think um, I've been thinking back to election day in 2008, and if your city was like my city, there were long lines of people at polling places waiting to vote, and those lines that that I saw in Boston were were lines of black people. Um, in something that I had never seen before. People excited to vote because they felt like they had something to vote for. And there's a lot of reasons why people were excited to vote for Barack Obama. But the question of addressing the reality of racism, I think, was at the forefront of the minds of a lot of people, black and, and white, and, and, and other people of color. Um, and actually, a USA Today Gallup poll in 2008 said that 80% of people thought that Obama would, um, would improve things for minorities and the poor. And so I think that's, that's what inspired people to get out and vote. And when Obama won, of course, there were celebrations in this city, in, in Grant Park, on the streets of Harlem, um, on campuses across the country. And I, I just remember watching TV and seeing footage of um, live footage of, of celebrations at Spelman and Morehouse, historically black colleges, and just seeing black people elated. And... It's the first time in my life that I've seen masses of black people elated because we haven't had much to be, to be happy about, honestly. And I think that um, nearly three years later, those smiles have faded from people's faces. Um, by every indicator, things are worse for black people today than they were before Obama's election. And indeed, they're the worst they've been in decades. Um, and so what I want to do in this talk is, is uh, look at the actual state of of, of real black America, because contrary to what you might see on Fox News, the majority of black people in the U.S. are not presidents of the United States. Um, so, and, um, and, and, and of course, I think there's, there's a, a bitter reality of the state of black America, and the contradiction is that we have a black president for the first time. And so that's really what I want to, to, um, to uh, start a conversation about. Um, and so I think, though, that the state of black America, um, an assessment of that begins with an assessment of the state of the U.S. working class, right, which the, 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 the overwhelming majority of black people are in the working class. And the state of the U.S. working class right now is a nightmare. Um, we, we're seeing record inequality. Um, there's um, the, a, a recent statistic has come out that says the bottom 90 percent, uh, the, the average income of the bottom 90 percent is $31,244 in the U.S. right now. You can't really call it the bottom 90% when it's like 90%. It's just like that's the population. So, so 90% of the population, that's you know, their words, not mine. 90% of the population makes about $31,000 a year. But for the top 1%, it's $1.1 million per year. So it's like, oh, one year went by. I collected $1.1 million. Another year went by. Another $1.1 million. Um, and, and for the majority of people, obviously, we're not seeing anything like that. Um, and this, the, same, the same study put out by Yahoo News said that while for the majority of people in this country, wages and income have either stagnated or declined, for the top 1%, they have quadrupled. Um, so this has just been a tremendous transfer of wealth. 
um, from, from, from the majority of us to, to the, the super rich. Um, in a recession, this means record poverty rates. So in 2009, which is the, the last year that the Census Bureau has statistics for, 45, 45 million people in the United States, the richest country in the world, 14.3% um, of the population is living in poverty. So this is the greatest number of Americans living in poverty since statistics started to be counted in, um, in, in 1959. Now we know that um, these realities and the layoffs um, that, that, are, that are hitting the economy and the abandonment by the government that are affecting the whole U.S. working class are affecting black people disproportionately. So, whereas the overall poverty rate um, was 14.3% for white Americans, um, uh, just kidding, the, the, the overall poverty rate, um, yes, for, for, was 14.3% in general. And for white Americans, it was 9%. For black people, it was 26%, which is about the same as it was in 1968, before affirmative action. Okay. Um, unemployment in May was at 9.1%. That's the, the general unemployment uh, figure. For black workers, it was 16.2%, which is more than double um, the, the statistic for, for white workers, which is 8%. Um, this is not just because black people were worse off before the recession that we were. Um, it's because it's also because the dynamics of the re recession itself are affecting black people in, in particular ways. They're particularly targeting black people. So, for example, the ruling class um, austerity offensive, which is a, a, a centerpiece of which is attacking public sector jobs, is an attack on black, black America, basically. It's a catastrophe for the black working class in particular. This is because... The, the, the government at the, the federal, state, and local levels, government jobs are the biggest source of jobs um, for, for, uh, for black workers. 21% of black workers have public sector jobs um, compared to 17% of white workers. And this is because historically the public sector has had less racism than, 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 than the private sector. Um, but the reality now that there's massive layoffs hitting is that, is that it's affecting black people in a disproportionate way. Um, Another uh, part of that, and, and also a central part of, of um, just the, the austerity offensive, is a particular attack on public education, an attack on teachers. And I just want to um, say what that's meant for, for black teachers in, in New York City in particular. Um, in 2002, 27% of teachers in the, in the New York City school district were black. Um, last year, it was 13%. Okay, thank you. Um, and this is also affecting black children um, in cities like Detroit, where the school district is planning on closing half of the schools, um, which acknowledge that, or, or I'm sorry, which, um, which, which, yeah, which officials acknowledge that that reality will produce class sizes in some cases of 60 students in the classroom. Um, and um, in the words of, um, of socialist worker columnist and, and um, writer on, 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 um, on black America, uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor, who's here in the room, um, quote, no one in their right mind thinks that uh, any teaching or learning can happen in a classroom that size, but because these are mostly black children, it's permissible. Um, on the subject of education, by the way, um, the, the, the schools have been resegregated, which I, I think is something that, that everybody um, in, this, in this room knows. And if people who are not familiar with Jonathan Kozel's work, um, Familiarize yourself with it. Jonathan Kozel, I think, is really the Howard Zinn of, of, of education. And his book, um, Shame of a Nation, sheds light on the, the segregated reality of public education in the U.S., um, a reality that he, he refers to as apartheid schooling, 
um, where um, the, the majority of black children and Latino children go to schools that are, that are overwhelmingly um, black and Latino. And so actually three quarters of, of, of black and Latino kids attend um, schools that are 99% people of color in, in, in this country, attend apartheid schools. And so when you have this level of segregation where kids of color are concentrated in, um, in urban city school districts, and those are the school districts that are being hit the hardest by the austerity, this is an attack on the public sector, an attack on black teachers, and an attack on, on black and Latino children. Um, there's the housing crisis, um, which, which much could be said about um, I'll, I'll just say this, that the, the Center for Responsible Lending calculates that 11% um, of African-American homeowners are in some stage of foreclosure. So 10 black people who own homes walk, by, walk, walk down the street, you know, more than, more than one of them are in some level of foreclosure. And 1.1 million black families will lose their homes by, um, by, by 2012. Um, there's all sorts of reasons for this. Uh, during the housing bubble, black and Latinos were, were, were targeted um, with, um, with, with, the, with predatory loans and so on. And now, now that, that reality is, is coming home to roost in a, in a, in a bitter way. That combined, the, the housing crisis combined with the loss of jobs, um, the, the austerity and so on, is, um, is, is among other things, leading to a, a, another reality that black people are experiencing and, and people of color are experiencing, which is one of gentrification in the cities across the country as well. And um, I'll just say one, again, a lot could be said about that. Um, I'm sure that we all have stories from the cities that, that we're from, but um, one statistic is that in the, the black neighborhoods of Brooklyn, Clinton Hill, and Fort Greene, those, those neighborhoods have lost a third of their black populations. Um, you may be familiar with Fort Greene because it's where the Huxtables lived. Um, on the Cosby Show, uh, back when black people were on television. Um, so the, the neighborhoods like that have lost massive numbers of, of, of black people. And the overall black population of New York City has declined by 4%. Um, so then we get to the criminal justice system, which I just think is, is the greatest indication of, of the reality of institutionalized racism in, in, in this country right now. Um, and, and so much of, um, I'm not going to say too much, frankly, there, there's a lot of people in the room who I want to defer to who have a lot of expertise on the questions of how um, the housing crisis is affecting black America and the criminal justice system is as well. But I will say a few words, and, and, and what, I, what I'm drawing upon is the work of Michelle Alexander, who people here may be familiar with, whose book, The New Jim Crow, is sending shockwaves, I think, um, in, in, into, into uh, the U.S. political discourse, and it's, a, it's about time that she's talking about the, these realities of the criminal justice system and how they're affecting black people. So just a few really damning statistics. Um, there are more African Americans today under correctional control, that is, in jail, in prison, on probation, or on parole, than there were black people enslaved in 1850, um, a decade before the Civil War began. Um, as of 2004, more black men were disenfranchised due to laws that disenfranchised felons. More black men were disenfranchised than in 1870, the year that the 15th Amendment was passed, um, which, it, which, which enfranchised black people um, by, 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 uh, by eliminating laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. Um, and actually, the, the reality of that disenfranchisement um, it looks, it, it, it's bad across the board, but it's particularly striking when you look at it in particular places. So in Chicago, for example, and I, I didn't, this is so shocking that I, it was hard to believe the statistic when, when, when I first read it, but in, in Chicago, the, the proportion of black men 
who have lost the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, and other rights um, because they're convicted felons. The proportion is 80%. 10 black men walk down the street in Chicago, eight of them can't vote because of felon um, disenfranchisement laws. Um, and I think that um, I think that Michelle Alexander sums up the the the, the reality, the overall reality of um, of, of 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 Black America um, succinctly. Uh, this is not Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. This is not the promised land. The cyclical rebirth of caste in America is a recurring racial nightmare. Um, so there's a question, which is, how is it how is it possible after the civil rights movement that this can be the reality? And particularly, how is it possible that this can be the reality when we have a black president in office? <laughs> and I think that um, I think that a discussion of black America would be remiss without a discussion of black politics. So word about black politics. Since black people have comprised an oppressed minority for the entirety of our experience in, in here in the in the US. The purpose, the primary purpose of black politics has always been addressing that, that reality, addressing that oppression in some way, whether it's been through confronting the American political system, attempting to work within it, or attempting to separate from it. Um, black politics have had to deal with racism and how, and how to overcome it. It must be said um, that today, in terms of the, this historic uh, challenge of black politics, actually engaging with racism and, and, and seeking to overcome it, um, in developing a politics and organization that address the realities of, of black people, today there is virtually nothing, you know, as, as far as far as, as, as black, black politics go. Nationally, there are no movements, organizations, or even individual figures, frankly, um, who are actively engaging with those realities. Um, and while there's very and, and there's very little locally, um, basically, uh, black politics right now is reduced to the fact that we have a black president. Um, something that, that, I, that I'll come back to. And for me, the, the, the indication of the crisis of black po politics and really the poverty of black politics came um, six years ago when Hurricane Katrina hit um, New Orleans and when a, 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 major U a major American city was completely abandoned purely because its population was, dis was, was black and disproportionately poor. And the fact that there was so little response. When there should have been a, a national mobilization to New Orleans or something, there was nothing, I think, indicated the, 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 the real crisis and poverty in, um, in black politics. Indeed, there is a disaster today. I mean, like Hurricane Katrina highlighted it in a dramatic way, but the devastation wrought by Katrina, is, it really plays out in black America every day in, in, in other ways, and there's virtually no discussion of it in the mainstream, with the exception of, I think, people like Michelle Alexander um, and, and, her, and her book. The, the most recent high point of black politics came during the civil rights and black power movements of the 1960s and 70s. Um, and so first of all, you had mobilization, politics, and resistance on all sorts of issues, from the legal segregation in the South to the de facto segregation um, in, the, in the North and, and, and West Coast. Um, and you had a, a situation in which Millions of people drew radical conclusions about what it would take to actually confront and end racism in this country. Um, so, so one thing that's quite striking is that at its height, the Black Panther Party um, for Self-Defense, their newspaper at its height had a circulation of 10,000 um, people. 10,000 people across the country were reading a revolutionary black newspaper, and actually 40% of black adults said they identified with the Black Panther Party. 40% of black, of, of black adults identifying with a party whose agenda 
was basically the, the overthrow of American capitalism um, in, in, in the creation of, of a different society. With, with all of the problems that the Black Panther Party had, the fact that that number of people drew those essentially revolutionary conclusions, um, I think, says a lot about, about that time. Now, the, the results of the kind of struggle that I think led to that, because those, those people didn't draw those conclusions immediately. It was after years of, 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 of fighting and getting the pushback of the system that people concluded, we actually need more radical measures to, to address racism in this country. Um, as a result of that, the system was forced to, to give in in some ways. And so we saw changes in institutionalized racism, like the end of legal segregation, um, uh, the creation of jobs programs, the creation of, um, of, of great society, social programs, and, um, and affirmative action. I didn't know that in, in 1969, Pre President Nixon, not exactly a friend to black people, issued an executive order calling for affirmative action in, 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 the, in the federal government. Which I, the, the fact that the President Nixon issued an executive order calling for affirmative action, an executive order, I mean, it didn't have to go through Congress. I mean, that, that says quite a lot about what a president has the power to do and what Obama could be using um, his, his executive power for instead of invading Libya. Um, so, um, but in the, the, the Nixon administration, though, I think is important to talk about because it marked a turning point for black politics in a number of ways. Um, the Nixon administration was, again, forced to address racism because there was so much um, there, there was so much uh, resistance to it, so many people mobilized um, against it. And one of the things that it put forward as its solution to racism was the Nixon administration version of black power, um, which for, for Nixon meant black capitalism. Um, that is the entrance of a small select group of black people into the halls of political power and into the economy as, as business owners. Um, so in terms of black capitalism, the Nixon administration set aside money to fund um, the nurturing of black businesses, the, the idea being to, to again, allow some, some black people um, to have a stake in the system. And I just want to read from um, what Time magazine said in 1969 about, about Nixon's black capitalism program. Because I think, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just read it. I think it's really revealing about the state of politics at that time. This is Time magazine. The catchy and promising phrase black capitalism became part of the language when Richard Nixon promised during his election campaign that his administration would step up loans and other aid for Negroes to start their own businesses. As Nixon put it, the government should act decisively to help Negroes gain their fair piece of the action. Uh, the, the rather general idea that Negroes should lift themselves up through business ownership, as many other ethnic groups had done in the U.S., inspired hope and votes among people of all races. To the extent that, um, that programs of black capitalism are successful, says Nixon, ghettos will gradually disappear. Today, so this is Time Magazine, today to many aspiring entrepreneurs in the ghettos, black capitalism sounds, just sounds like more smooth honky talk. <laughs> Time Magazine, people. <laughs> From, from all sides, the administration is under increasing criticism for failing to live up to campaign promises and provide forceful leadership. This is Time Magazine, not only, I don't know, using the word honky, but, 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 but also talking about the reality that, that the Nixon administration, and frankly, voicing a, 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 a critique of the Nixon administration that it's moving too slow, which, again, I mean, imagine if there was criticism about the Obama administration. Um, so so um, 
just in terms of what it meant for black politics, though, the Nixon administration appointed um, civil rights leader James Far Farmer to the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. And Farmer said regarding his appointment, quote, there is a great need for some people to get on the inside and to try to have some influence. So th this was the idea, that black people could actually get inside of the system, and that would be the way to carry out the, the civil rights movement. Again, um, civil rights move, uh, leader Whitney Young said, quote, more Negroes should be encouraged to accept jobs in the Nixon administration. It is to the benefit of every Negro in the country that we are ably represented. Um, and, and again, um, I'll, I'll quote from another magazine in 1969. This is Ebony Magazine, um, which is uh, a black, you know, black, mainstream black, black publication. Yeah, if you, yeah, some of us are familiar with uh, that publication. I'll, I'll, I'll withhold my comments on Ebony. Um, all right, so, but it, it says... The black man has been handicapped in the past because he did not have men on the inside in government. The very presence of a black man in an office or a committee helps keep the white majority from forgetting us. Now, first of all, the fact that this is an agenda apparently just for black men, which is not the entirety of the black population, this is, is you know, we'll put that aside. Um, but, but, but it has to be said, too, that this was a real departure from the ethos of the, of the civil rights and black power movement, the goals of which were not to make sure that we are remembered by the, the white majority, but that we are determining an agenda and forcing it into national consciousness and the institutions of power. That was really the ethos of the civil rights and black power movement. Um, the idea that sol the solutions for uh, the problems of black people um, lie in black people entering office, either through election or appointment, is predicated on the belief in American democracy. The idea is that the system is democratic and that the problem is that we have yet to be represented in these, um, these institutions of American democracy. So we just have to get inside. Um, and this ultimately, it has to be said, it, it meant not only pushing for more black politicians to get in, but actually um, embracing more reactionary people and forces in the government. So in the same breath as advocating for more blacks in office, Ebony argued for an acceptance of the reactionary racist Nixon um, administration. It said, quote, so far as uh, serving under President Nixon is concerned, let's face it, he's the only president we have. Let's give him a chance to prove himself. That was Ebony in 1969. Um, so for the Nixon administration, the move toward black power through promoting black capitalism and black politicians was part of a strategy to deal with the Negro problem by allowing a small few from the black middle class to enter into the economy as business owners and enter into the political system. This served two functions. First of all, to give a tiny layer of the black population a stake in the system. And second, it would result in black politicians being the ones who would have to oversee and deal with the problems faced by black people and the inevitable resistance um, that by black struggle. So for example, in, um, in 1967, which was the first year that black mayors uh, black people became mayors in, in major American cities. Um, Walter Washington was appointed mayor of Washington, D.C. They just took a, a black man and said, you, you're, you be the mayor, you. Um, and actually, one thing that's interesting is that um, uh, Lyndon Johnson approached uh, Washington and offered him the mayorship in 1966, but said, well, let you be mayor, but you won't have control of the police or fire department, which I, which I think says what, what they have in mind when they, when, they, when they mean a black mayor. They mean a black figurehead, um, basically. And, and so anyway, he became mayor in 1967 through appointment, and therefore when there was a rebellion in 1968 in Washington, D.C., in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King, it was a black mayor who had to, to, had to deal with it. And it should be added that at the same time as Johnson and Nixon administrations 
pursued a strategy of allowing a tiny number of black people to enter into um, political and, and economic, uh, to have slivers of the political and economic pie, they were also using violent repression to attack some of the more militant and frankly not very militant sections of the civil rights and, and, and black power movements through the counterintelligence program known commonly as COINTELPRO. So you have the carrot and the stick. The carrot is allow some black people to be black capitalists and politicians. The stick is we will assassinate, um, jail, and, and harass uh, black activists on the ground. So for those blacks who entered politics um, and in the business world, there was a they, they had a strategy as well, it has to be said. It wasn't just about the Nixon administration's strategy, but they had a strategy too. These were, um, these were people in the black middle class who could actually achieve what they had wanted to um, if, if they were allowed in the system. That is, with legal segregation over and blacks having won the right to vote, the prospect of a leg up for starting businesses or entering positions with some institutional power for middle class blacks who were insulated from the worst of the poverty and police violence that affected most urban black people was a good thing. And actually, um, Martin Luther King, at the end of his life, voiced the frustration uh, that he had with the conservatism of some of the, the, the middle class black people who were willing to um, either become business owners and, and, and sort of see that as we've made it, we've arrived, or become black politicians um, and, and, and say that, that the civil rights movement is over. He said, um, you know, we have too many Negroes who have somehow through some education or degree of economic security, floated or swam out of the backwaters, but now they have forgotten the stench of the backwaters. So he's talking about a cleavage between um, a, a layer of, of middle class black people who are able to get into the system and the vast majority of black people. Now this is not to say that middle class blacks live lives free of racism, but to explain why a section of black people were willing to accept a seat at the table of power for, for self-interest or because it made sense to them as a strategy for pursuing the struggle against racism. This is why James Farmer was not the only person in the civil rights movement actually who, who, um, who was an organizer turned politician. Marion Barry, who became mayor of Washington DC as well, actually had his roots um, as an organizer in the, in, um, in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, so into the 1970s and 80s, a generation of black politicians ran for and won office as part of this strategy. This, by the way, meant cementing the relationship between the black electorate and the Democratic Party, and of course the end game being getting a black president in, in the office. So, looking back, we have to ask the question, how has this strategy fared? Now for black capitalism, it has to be said that, yeah, a layer of, a, a tiny layer of black people have made it. When the Nixon administration began its black capitalism programs, um, Black-owned businesses comprise 3% of businesses in the U.S. Now it's 7% today, so which is still a tiny portion, but, but, but more, more than double what it was. Um, and, and I think that that's one indication of, of a layer of, of black people actually getting, getting into the system in, in, a, in a certain way. Um, in the sense of getting black people into office, it's been mixed. I'm a particularly successful on the local level. Basically, every major city in the United States has had a black mayor at this point with one notable exception, uh, the city where I live, Boston, Massachusetts, which, by the way, was the last major city to desegregate schools in the 70s, after schools were desegregated in the South. Um, as I said earlier, the notion that black people simply need to participate in the democratic process is premised on the idea that the US is a, is a democracy. But it's not, that's the thing, you know, it's not a democracy. It wasn't when we were brought here in chains, and it isn't now. Now, I could argue why the US is not a democracy on a, on a Marxist theoretical basis by talking about the class nature of U.S. society um, and who's, in whose interest the US, uh, uh, govern, U.S. government governs and so on. But instead, let's just look empirically at the experience of the past um, 40 years since this strategy was pursued. 
Uh, the election of more and more black mayors in the 80s and 90s coincided with the explosion of the black prison population um, at, at the same time, the undoing of affirmative action, the dismantling of welfare, and the resegregation of schools. Moreover, as the U.S. ruling class went on an all-out offensive against the working class, it was in many cases black mayors who oversaw the attacks on black working class people and managed the inevitable fallout. And so just a few notable examples. It was a black mayor of Philadelphia, Wilson Good, who bombed the black separatist um, move organization in 1985. It was a black mayor in office in Los Angeles, Tom Bradley, who was in office during the notorious acquittal of the cops who beat up Rodney King and the rebellion that swept that city in 1992. It was a black mayor of New Orleans, Ray Nagin, who was empowered during Katrina. Um, it, it is a black governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, where I live, um, who was pushing through austerity. It was a black governor of New York State, David Patterson, who, who, um, who escalated the, the wave of austerity in that state. Um, and, of course, it is a black president, Barack Obama, who is essentially continuing and escalating basically every policy of the Bush administration, domestic and foreign. Now, this is not to say that we should oppose black politicians entering office. On the contrary, I think the fact that there have only been three black governors in the entire history of the U.S., three black governors in the history of the, of the U.S., I think speaks to um, the, the racism that permeates all institutions of U.S. society, and we should oppose racism in, in, in all of those institutions. And I think that a country that was founded on slavery now has a black president is something to celebrate, or at least it was, it was something to, to celebrate. Um, but as a, it has to be said that as a strategy for addressing the problems faced by ordinary black people, this strategy has not, has not worked. Um, and uh, now I think we have to say it's the right wing and the ruling class who's celebrating. You know, it's no longer working class people or black people in the streets. It, it's, it's the right wing. And um, I just want to read the words of, um, of, of Ross Dothat, um, who was a right winger um, who, who had a, a, an op-ed piece in the New York Times. He was speaking on, um, on foreign policy, but I think that what he's, everything he's saying um, could be said for domestic policy. He says, for those with eyes to see, the daylight between the policies of George W. Bush and Barack Obama has been shrinking ever since the current president took the oath of office. And he celebrates this as a, as a great thing. Um, now, I don't, what, I, what I don't want to do is attribute the, the decline or, or the, 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 the brutal reality that black people face. I don't want to say that it's the fault, necessarily, of, of the black politicians but rather, what we've seen at the same time as there's been a strategy to get more black people elected is the decline of black protest politics and the decline of black radical politics. And that, I think, is, is the problem. There's, there hasn't been um, re the resistance that we saw in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and so just speaking about today, since the election of Obama, black politics has essentially involved defending Obama um, and, and, and his policies. Um, and, and so Reverend Al Sharpton, for example, who's probably the most prominent black activist in the U.S., has made it his business not only to defend Obama, but to discourage any criticism of Obama by other black commentators, um, especially since last year when Sharpton essentially made it his business to, uh, to, to get Obama reelected. So defending um, the, the, the fact that Obama has said nothing about racism since the election, um, Al Sharpton argued on the Tavis Smiley show, quote, the president does not need to get out there and do what we should be doing, um, presumably talking about racism, which is ironic since Al Sharpton has stop talking about racism instead you know just been trying to shore up the vote for for um for obama um the argument that sharpton made is that if obama promoted um policy initiatives that would benefit black people that would be quote just stupid because it would give the conservatives fodder to attack obama um 
And, and you know, I, I was trying to think if there's anything that, that the Obama administration has said about race. And essentially, the, the only time that he came close was after um, uh, black academic Henry Louis Gates was arrested for going to his own house in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Obama invited him and the cop who arrested him to come and have a beer at the White House. That, that, that is the sum total of, of Obama's engagement on the question of race. And it was to, to reconcile a cop with, with, a, with, a, with a black man who was a victim of, of police harassment. Um, and just to, to sort of, I guess, crystallize what, what the, the approach of, um, the approach toward, uh, around, of, of black politics vis-a-vis the, the administration um, is, is a really, I think, insightful uh, statement from Reverend Eugene Rivers, who's a, a, a black pastor in Boston and a commentator on MSNBC. He said, there is a philosophical power struggle going on in black America between the old school protesters and the post-ideological pragmatists. Al Sharpton learned more quickly than many others that the ascension of Obama meant the end of protest politics. Um, Now, thankfully, there has been... um, there has been some critique. Um, people like Tavis Smiley, I think, have, have tried to open up some space for, 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 for black commentators to criticize Obama. Um, Cornell West um, also ha- has, has been critical. And then um, Michael Eric Dyson, who I think, I think you know, said very, very well um, um, while, while speaking uh, on, on Tavis Smiley's show. He said, Abraham Lincoln had to deal with race. LBJ had to deal with race. How come Obama's the first president who doesn't have to deal with race? That is, every, every president has to deal with the question of black people in particular. So why is it that the black president somehow doesn't, doesn't have to deal with it? Um, now, but the, the protest politics that Rivers um, derides have yet to come back into the mainstream. That has to be acknowledged. Those politics and the organizations that can mobilize people along their lines will have to be rebuilt. Now, in some cases, there are organizations that we can see have the potential to become a context for the, the rejuvenation of those protest politics. And there's not many examples, but there, there, there are some instances of unions actually resisting the austerity offensive. And in, in certain cities, that means black unions. So in New York City, um, on, uh, on June 15th, 15,000 workers um, in the building trades unions um, stormed the, the city hall, essentially, chanting, uh, Wall Street, fuck you, I believe, was the, uh, <laughs> the um, chant. The majority of whom were, were black. Um, in most cases, though, I think that the resistance will have to be built from scratch. And I think that there, um, one thing is that you have to look very hard to see it, but there are these, these glimmers of hope if, 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 you, if you look hard. So um, on March 4th in, um, at Lincoln High School in Dallas, Texas, there was a, a walkout by hundreds of students, the vast majority of whom were black, that was led by the Black Student Council president um, to, to protest the, the, the layoffs of teachers that the school district was, uh, was handing down. Um, that was followed by another walkout in Cedar Hill High School, also in Dallas. And then on April 13th, Morton Ranch High School in Houston, same thing. Black, um, black student body has a, a, a walkout protest to, to protest the attack on schools. Um, we know that many things like this are happening. It's hard to see because they're happening in, in locality. You know, they're, they're happening in cities across the country, and they don't always make mainstream news. But, but they're happening. And what we're seeing is potentially a generation of people relearning that we have to protest if we're, if we're going to get um, what, what it is we need. Um, and I, I want to say, too, just as, as, we're, as we talk about the prospect of a new generation um, awakening to the notion of protest politics, it has to be said that there is a basis 
for taking up racism in the context of a class struggle that I think has not existed in a long time. And this is because, frankly, objectively, things are so bad for, for the U.S. working class across the board that, that it's easier to see racism in, in, in a class context. So in the 1960s, which again was, was the, the most recent high point of black struggle, that coincided with an economic boom that black people were, were largely left out of. But for white working class people, there was an ascending lifestyle. You could get a decent job with a high school education, move to the suburbs, send your kids to college, they would have better lives than you, and so on. Nobody in the US working class can say that now at all. So, so, so when you have black high school students walking out to protest the firing of teachers, that's coming in the context of an all-out assault on public education affecting the entire working class. And I think that the resistance can be seen in that context. And so I want to end on this because this is really the hope. Um, and it, it's the beginning of a revival of the struggle against racism, but not the end. Um, because for the, the black politics that have dominated for the past 40 years, the end game has been getting a black president. But for us, the end game is black uh, liberation. Um, and this means a struggle that, um, that comes to develop anti-racist and anti-capitalist uh, uh, consciousness. Um, and that, that's an anti-capitalist consciousness because the state of black America is, is not, to, to really understand, it's not enough to look at the past few years of the Obama administration or even the preceding years of the Bush administration, but rather the, the kind of damage done to black America is the accumulated reality of decades of racism. And that's because racism is embedded in a, in a system of, of, of capitalism. And so the idea that, that you can have a struggle that is anti-racist and anti-capitalist may seem like a, a far off um, pro prospect now, but it's not impossible. Um, and that's because racism is so deeply integrated with American capitalism that when there has been black struggle, it necessarily raises the question of the, of the system itself. That is, in the 1960s, people started out by saying, we want to sit at a lunch counter and left that struggle as revolutionaries because they realized, I just want to sit at a lunch counter and I've been beaten and arrested. That, that, that means that this is something deeper than just the attitudes of the people at, at Woolworths. This is actually um, about, about a systemic racism that, that's, that's built into the system. So, um, so this, this, uh, a revival of this kind of resistance is possible, I think. We don't know at what pace it will develop, but I think it has to be said, um, none of us, with the maybe exception of comrades who are in Wisconsin, there are some in the room maybe things, but no, I did not expect thousands of people in Wisconsin to occupy a state capital in, in, in protest of, of, of austerity. That is, we're, we're in a moment where there is, there is such an attack and where I think people had high hopes going into the Obama administration that people, that, that resistance will, will appear. We don't know how or, 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 or what context, but we know that it will appear. And our role, I think, is to involve ourselves in these small struggles, but the whole time raise, raise the ideas of black liberation, of racism as part of, of, of American capitalism, and keep our eyes on the prize of black liberation through socialist revolution. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org. <laughs>